Welcome to Stu's EV Universe, where you can find anything and everything electric vehicle. Today on the podcast, I want to uh, welcome Michael Benson. And Michael is co-owner of Command Consulting. Thank you for coming on the, uh, the podcast today. I know it's... Uh, it's uh, the holiday season, so uh, I appreciate you taking the time. It is my pleasure. Always like talking about EVs and EV infrastructure. Absolutely. Uh, that's great. And uh, I guess just to start out, if we can maybe just hear a little bit about uh, your back. I believe you were uh, a fire chief uh, for over 11 years before this. So can we just get a little bit of, of that before we kind of move right into it? Absolutely. I finished a 30-plus year career in the fire service back in 2018. And what's weird is the background to YEV is a couple of years before I retired, I was going to get a retirement vehicle because as a chief, I would drive a chief's car. So I was looking at electric, or looking at vehicles and came up with a approximate price. And that's when the Tesla Model 3 electric vehicle came out, did a test drive on a Tesla Model S just for fun. And my wife was like, you can get 80% of this car for $35,000, which is around what we were looking at. Absolutely. So we signed up for that vehicle while I was still chief because we knew it was going to be a couple of years before it arrived and I was a couple of years out before retirement. And of course, being the nerd fire chief that I was, I started going down the rabbit hole of electric vehicles and electrification, what that all means. And that's what we get to talk about later. Yeah, no, that's great. And I kind of, uh, I wanted to touch on the the fire, you know, fire chief stuff um, first, because that's something we haven't talked about on the podcast yet. And I do think it's important. I know in Auto Week uh, article from October 22, um, there's some data. Hybrid vehicles had the most fires per 100,000 sales at 3,474.5. Um, next, there were uh, 1,529.9 uh, fires per 100,000 gas cars, and then 25.1 uh, per 100,000 sales for electric vehicles. Um, so I have a few questions with that. So first of all, the hybrid thing kind of struck me as odd. And I'm wondering if uh, you have any in insight into that? Um, I mean, is it is it because of the merger of the two? Or, or I'm also wondering maybe, because it just says hybrid. So I'm wondering if they include hybrids and plug-in hybrids in there. I, I didn't know what your take was on, on all of that. And then obviously it's stunning. Nobody wants any car to catch on fire. But um, the EV numbers are just minuscule compared to the other ones. So let's, let's think about the machine. And right now today, everybody driving a, a gas car, what we refer to as internal combustion engine, which you also do as well, so we'll just call them ICE cars, the ICE cars, they have been catching fire since the beginning, and they burn great. Uh, I was a fire investigator throughout my career, and I cannot tell you how many car fires we put out because it was just a regular occurrence. It was just something you always did, probably once a week or a couple times a week, you're putting car fires out. So nobody even thinks about it because it's just something we're all used to. So that vehicle that's already dangerous, already full of a tank of fuel that is flammable and, uh, and depending on what kind of fuel it is, can be combustible or flammable. And the difference between combustible and flammable is one really goes big and grows and goes crazy. That's Anybody who's set up on fire with gasoline understands that. Whereas diesel's combustible, it's hard to actually make burn. 
uh, but you can make it burn, but you have to actually do things to make it burn better. So the internal combustion engine vehicle is already inherently dangerous just because of how it is. It's why you have a firewall, for example, so that the motor doesn't come into your vehicle and all the kind of stuff, safety things that are designed into vehicles were designed because they're dangerous and they catch fire. So if you take that kind of vehicle, it's already dangerous and a really complicated thousands of moving parts machine or 2000 moving parts, whatever the, the number of moving parts is, let's make it electric. So if you take all the dangerous stuff out and put in just battery electric vehicle, now you have a stable platform that you would have to do something to it to make it catch fire. It's not inherently dangerous. Everybody hears about the lithium ion and the, the thermal runaway and all that kind of stuff. You have to do something to it to make that happen. It doesn't naturally do it unless it's really poorly made early on. Lots of lithium ion fires and stuff that we had to deal with, with mostly were really cheap things from China from 10 years ago or longer. And people, for example, the e-bike issue right now in New York City, a lot of people are changing the power, adding more batteries. And it's never something that's actually the way it was manufactured. So the actual manufactured listed, UL listed and or EPA approved battery electric vehicles are inherently safer just because they don't have a big tank of gasoline, way fewer moving parts. The only danger is you do have a big battery pack with lots of power in it that if you affect that, you will get a fire. So we know we have an uh, issue with internal combustion engine, and we know there's a new version of that issue in electric fires, which as you can uh, see from the numbers are rare. Of course, these vehicles are relatively new, so there's less, less time for them to age and all that kind of stuff. So we'll, we'll see how the numbers change, but it's a huge difference right now in percentage-wise. So let's take what's really dangerous and what's potentially dangerous, and let's combine them together. So I explained to people, hybrid electric vehicles whether they're plug-in hybrids, regular hybrids, mild hybrids, whatever they are, you just took a complicated machine and made it more complicated. So you're just asking for trouble. And instead of getting a really good internal combustion engine car or a really good battery electric car, you get half of each. So you get half of a good car combined with half of another good car, but together is not really a very good car. Now, if you're just looking at miles per gallon, Toyota Prius, that kind of thing, sure, you're going to go from 15, 20 miles per gallon to 50. That's great. That's a wonderful thing if all you're trying to do is conserve on fuel. But if you really want to get a safe, effective vehicle, the time now is to go battery electric. It's absolutely the better choice. It is the safer choice. It is the better vehicle for you to purchase. So when I recommend to people, because they're like, well, I'll just get a hybrid. That's, that's good. And I'm like, well, not really. You're actually making something that's good worse, not better. It's not the best of both worlds. It's the worst of both worlds. So hybrids, in my opinion, not a good vehicle, understand the concept of people trying to go. And if that's what you need to do to go from internal combustion into the battery, go right ahead. But you take something that's complicated and dangerous and make it more complicated and more dangerous. And that would explain your the higher rate of vehicle fires. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, my wife and I were at uh, a winery, you know, maybe a year or so ago. And, uh, as everyone should be at Winery as everyone, Springs early. Yes. <laughs> as everyone should be, absolutely. And uh, so we were just hanging out, and someone, there was a Subaru, I think, in the parking lot. And someone came in, and I, they said, oh, is that your Subaru? Because what a great color. And then I said, no, you know, we have the Chevy, Chevy Volt out there. And I said, oh, and it hasn't caught fire yet? So, you know, with the Chevy Bolt, I know, some people, when they think of EVs, they think of danger and fire. And that's that's the farthest thing from the truth. Why do you think that is? I mean... Oh, yeah, I think I think you know the answer already. <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, uh, those, those of you listening to this podcast most likely have heard the term FUD, 
Right. Uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So internal combustion engine vehicles use fossil fuels and primarily oil. The oil and gas industry, or, or just the oil industry, makes billions with a B, billions with a B, profit daily, daily, every day. They make billions, which is why they have so much money. They can afford to put out there or to promote any time an electric vehicle catches fire, especially if the word starts with T and ends in Tesla, you will see it <laughs> on the news. And they put it on all the news channels that are advertised quite a bit of internal combustion engine vehicles, fossil fuel industry, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of that out there, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt or FUD that's been created. And like you said, when you look at actual numbers, the electric vehicles are far less dangerous. They're, they're much safer. And they're... The, the basic physics, so this is what I liked about it, being the nerd fire chief, I went down this path. The basic physics of the electric vehicle, when you use the skateboard platform, and what I mean by that, which you understand, but the folks listening may not understand, is the battery pack is down at the frame rails between the wheels. So the biggest, heaviest part of the vehicle, the most mass, is at the bottom of the car, which makes it extremely stable. Also, it's the place that gets the least amount of damage. You're, you're not getting hit. Uh, at the bottom of the car, typically, unless you're doing something really excessive. So most of the damage we got were front end, rear end, rollover, that kind of thing. You would have to do rollover and then hit the bottom of the electric vehicle to damage that, that battery pack. So it is inherently a safer vehicle just in physics, just in basic physics. It's hard to roll over an electric vehicle that has a battery pack down its mass between the wheels. So when I looked at my car, and of course now I'm going to nerd out just a little bit, the polar moment of inertia of my car, which means the literal center of mass of all the weight and space and size and everything is literally in the center of my car. You can't make a more perfectly balanced car. It's not possible. And you definitely can't do it with a internal combustion engine because as you use fuel in your tank, it changes the amount of mass from the back to the front and it gets used and of course burns off and you lose 80% of it to heat. So, But it's uh, it is the idea that the way that those are designed and the efficiency involved, they are the absolute best vehicles. And if you wanted a 600-mile one, they could make one today. It just would be expensive to do and not necessarily important or needed for that kind of an application. But maybe for patrol cars on state highways, you know, highway patrol vehicles, maybe they need that longer-range uh, battery, that kind of thing. Or, of course, the semi, which you just heard about, the Tesla semi, and there's other, sem other electric semis out there, too that need that size. But, oh, yeah, just figuring out the whole physics of it was amazing to me to see how balanced and planted on the ground, which people always said were great things about performance vehicles, German performance cars, for example. Uh, they always said they're really well planted. Well, you're going to get that with a native electric vehicle. Yeah, and that's really interesting. I mean, and I actually never thought of it that way because you have this fuel tank and uh, yeah, I mean, you, you go from full to empty and you're driving a car that has, I suppose, a different feel and, and different properties. Uh, I never really thought of that. That's really very, very interesting. Yeah, the racing community completely understands it because they have to account for that as it changes. Yes. Right, right. And with with, with a battery ve electric vehicle, it's constant. Um, mm -hmm. So I would assume that you have a better feel and understanding of how your car drives because it's always driving the same. Yep. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, except for if you get really low on power, then it would just change how much power. But right. as far as balance on the road, physical actual physics it's it's constant now there's only you know one other thing and then we'll move on from from the the, the fire stuff um to to other things which i'm also excited about but since evs are quote unquote new they're really not new but um this kind of 
influx of EVs is very new and it's very exciting. But with that, you don't have necessarily a standard. So vehicles are going to have accidents um, and, they, and they're going to catch on fire. There's going to be bad things that happen to them, hopefully at a minimum, which is great news for everybody out there. But as first responders and firefighters, there seems to be a, a knowledge base that's needed for someone has an accident it's a Tesla or it's a Chevy Bolt or, you know, uh, you know, a Kia EV6, whatever it is. And they're all a little different. You know, they're different as far as an owner's point of view where you charge and they're a lot, sometimes different where the battery, you know, packs are located. So it seems to me that that's a challenge, I would assume, for the firefighter. How are fire departments dealing with that challenge? Are they dealing with it well? Uh, you know, how, how does that look like? now and then moving forward. So there's already training available for free to fire departments. And if a fire department at this point, and I'm gonna put back on my, my chief hat and lecture just a little bit, any fire department that hasn't taken the training that's already out there that's free and or downloaded the PDFs that are available on every electric vehicle that's out there. And like you said, it's been out for a long time. If you haven't trained for an electric vehicle fire by this point, what are you doing? because this is going to happen eventually. Someone's gonna crash an electric vehicle. You're gonna have an electric vehicle fire. You're gonna to have to deal with it. And you need to be up to date as to, as to what it is you're supposed to be doing. And you can get free training through the National Fire Protection Association, the NFPA. And of course you can get training locally from other agencies that might offer the training here in Ohio specifically, because I'm in Northeast Ohio. At the auto show, they have always had a public safety day. And on the public safety day, you could go in and get training on extrication, how to, uh, cut open a car to get somebody out if they've crashed their car. Well, then electric vehicle part of that, is, the electric vehicle specifics for part of that has been included for the last several years. You, I watched a Tesla Model 3 right before COVID, so it would have been in uh, spring of 2019. Watch them cut one up at the big show. There's a really big fire show in uh, Indianapolis every spring. And right before the pants of the wind 2019, they were cutting one up, which made me sad, of course, because I had to watch a car just like mine being cut up and mine was only less than a year old. But if you didn't take advantage of that free training or that eligible training or relatively inexpensive training, at this point, what are you doing? Because this is a new hazard for you to be aware of. So every fire department should already be trained. That being said, so I'm done lecturing off my soapbox because, you know, the, the chief's saying, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? Uh, the training that's available does need to be specific because it is different. It, you get trained for firefighting, depending if you're a structural firefighter or a wildland firefighter who fight outside or fight inside, whatever you want to call it. You've you got to get training on what you're what you're doing and electric vehicle fires are inherently different. They have different considerations for what you need to do, uh, but it still comes down to some of the basic concepts that we always have and that's incident priorities. Number one being life safety. So if there's nobody that's actually anywhere near that vehicle, no one's gonna get hurt or killed, then take the time, do it right, uh, access, it, access that fire and put it out from a distance or use the new tools they have out there because there's actually a tool designed that you, you shove underneath the vehicle and it punctures the battery case, the casement because most of those battery packs are held in really tough boxes essentially so that you can't damage them. And then that, act, that access to the battery pack itself and you can put water in it. It's made by a company called Rosenbauer who also happens to make electric fire trucks. So there's tools out there, there's training out there, there's all kinds of different ways to put fires out out there. They're doing things like media, like actually using uh, fiberglass uh, to actually engulf and just all kinds of different things that's available to you. But in the end, know what you're dealing with, 
access your resources, get your training, and put the fire out uh, safely and effectively. And they know how to do that, and if they don't, they should go get the training so they do know. So it's just another new hazard for the fire service to deal with. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I hope everybody's doing that. I mean, I, I know that sometimes, uh, you know, they might be thinking, oh, well, it's 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 such a small percentage that why are we even thinking about that? But um, it's just really, really coming. And there, there's just a mind-boggling amount of EVs out there, different models. Um, so that that's really interesting. Um, yeah, the next thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was equally as, as interesting, electrification of fleets. And as important, you know, uh, if, if we're going to be kind of moving in the right direction, I think. There seems to be some, I guess, apprehension might be the word uh, when it comes to electrification of fleets. I know we did, uh, it, I think it's our most popular podcast um, that we've ever done. We've actually done two interviews with the police chief of Berea, Kentucky. Yeah, well done. Well done. First and only so far. Uh, police department in Kentucky to have cruisers that are electric. Uh, they have to be Teslas. Um, and I think, if memory serves, the second, the first one was, you know, they unveiled them and talking about early stuff, you know, and, and reception, all that kind of stuff and impressions. The second one was a year later, which I think was extremely valuable because we had data. Everybody wants to see data. And uh, I think it was something like $23,000, $25,000, something like that, a big number that was saved over the year in, in fuel and maintenance costs with just these like three or four cars. Yeah, that's about right. And that was before the run-up in fuel costs. Mm -hmm. So that's really a nice thing. People started to stand up, you know, sit up and take notice with that. So that's exciting, but then kind of, you know, begs the question, why don't people just, you know, see this and do the same thing? I mean, what are some of those, the barriers to electrification for fleets, you know, in, in towns and cities? So if we're talking specifically on municipal electrification, some of the biggest barriers are a lot of that misunderstanding. So a lot of that fear, uncertainty, and doubt has created a mistrust in electric vehicles. It's created this belief that they are unsafe, that they are not efficient, that you're just switching your, your uh, pollution from the tailpipe to the coal plant and that kind of thing, all of which is absolutely untrue. And everybody I know that has switched, police departments, fire departments, has switched to an electric vehicle is really happy with it and wants to get more. So one of the first ones was Fremont, California. They bought a used Tesla Model S and then used that vehicle. And then the one that has the really big win is Bargersville, Indiana, which is as middle of a conservative area of the country. And the police chief is conservative politically. But it made sense economically for what he had to deal with. And he's saving $6,000 per car per year back when the prices were still low. So you are absolutely in the same wheelhouse, somewhere somewhere five to $6,000 per vehicle. Folks sometimes need to see it to believe it, uh, especially if you have any kind of a political bent, you know, right or left or whatever. Then you already have, you're approaching it from a perception and you have to overcome the perception. And that's a lot of what we do. Uh, part of my company is actually doing advocacy. So I actually presented to a police fleet expo last August. I presented to a fire department ex expo the year before uh, to explain to them that the electric vehicles are coming and how much better they are. But it's almost like they need somebody to buy it 
maybe the next door neighbor, try it out, put their hands on it, see what it actually can do. And this is a nascent application of this technology. You and I know that this technology is well proven, knows what it knows what it can do. It's going to work. It's actually it's going to take over the automotive industry in the next five to ten years. You won't be able to buy uh, gas or diesel anymore in the next five to ten years, just because of the economics. The your car companies can't keep making internal combustion engines and then make electric vehicles. They have to switch between the two, and it's whether they can survive that so-called valley of death of switching from one to the other. Ford makes a lot of sense, by the way, splitting the company, the internal combustion engine company and the electric vehicle company. That way you can make that transition and um, not lose out or, or go bankrupt. So that's coming anyway. So you would think, and I would think, that this is obvious, that what are you doing? You're, you're going to need to do this. Well... It is weird how I can explain this to people, give them the numbers, show them the proof. Bartersville, Indiana, $6,000 per car per year that they save, which means the increased cost up front to purchase it is offset within 18 to 24 months. And then from that point forward, any more miles they drive is, is pro- not profit, but you know, better for the community. So it saves taxpayer dollars. And I always focus on the economics of electrification because it actually is a combination of things. And of course, we'll talk about the infrastructure part of it next or whenever you're ready for the infrastructure part of it. But why they don't want to switch, I'll give you a really good example. Ford came out with a mild hybrid. And I think you understand. Let me explain what a mild hybrid is for folks that don't understand. Ford's Interceptor, Ford Explorer Interceptor, was a police-specific vehicle. Now, it's just an Explorer, but they changed some things around to make it better for being a police car. So it's been converted, not uh, upfitted, but converted. Upfitting is, is what you do where you add radios, lights, sirens, lettering, that kind of stuff. You do that on any electric, any vehicle for police and fire use and ambulance and EMS use. But the vehicle is actually purpose-built, so it comes off the line at a certain point and gets different things put into it so it can handle more power. So a bigger alternator, uh, better tuned motor, specific wheels and tires, uh, different wiring infrastructure so you can put in all that upfitting and all those kind of things. So it's you know, vinyl flooring, no center console, you know, cloth seats that can be wiped or vinyl seats can be wiped off easily, that kind of stuff. So that vehicle, they made a hybrid by adding a small battery to it. I'm going to guess because aftermarket bolt-on idlers were competing with them. So vehicles, they wanted it, because some people probably have a vehicle that turns itself off when you stop at a stoplight and if you haven't, and that's supposed to save fuel um, and supposedly to help with the planet. And it does to a very small percent. The hybrid electric Ford Interceptor, the perception from the police departments is, look at us going high tech. And it's not high tech at all. It's, once again, a complicated vehicle where you added more complexity to it just so you can turn itself off and run off of the battery uh, the battery is just a better version of a battery than the lead-acid battery that was there. That lets you sit on the scene and still run the lights because they're all LED now and give you a little boost in acceleration, which is nice. It actually is good. They actually took, it's almost like the best version of a hybrid because it gives you the extra boost you need. So you get that from the power, the torque from an electric vehicle. And then, of course, it allows you to turn off the internal combustion engine and run the lights and, and the radio and everything just on the um, the battery for a certain amount of time. Of course, at some point, it turns back on again. But that hybrid was, in my opinion, it slowed us down in the transition because switching to that made them feel like they were going green and high tech and this is a major change for them and it's really not a major change. But the perception is it's a major change. So that perception gets in the way. So all of this fear, uncertainty, and doubt, perceptions that they're already doing what they can and that these vehicles aren't proven and they don't necessarily work, it's something where they just have to see more of it to understand it and I've got a good example for public safety. Do so you know the Jaws of Life? You know what I'm talking about with the Jaws yep. of Life? 
was when I was trained on Jaws of Life, and they, they were new back in the early 80s. It's a high, it was a internal combustion engine motor, like a small Briggs and Stratton or a Honda motor, and then it had a hydraulic pump attached to it and used hydraulic hoses and a hydraulic tool to get the kind of power you needed to be able to take apart, take a car to part a car and save somebody. When somebody made a battery electric version, nobody believed it would work. They had to be proven over and over again. But as soon as you handed one to somebody and they were able to use it and it was lighter, faster, and better, now it's a, it took, a, took 10 years, about a little under 10 years, for the switch to occur. But now the default is you're always buying battery electric. And now you're buying battery electric Sawzalls, uh, you're buying battery electric fans, you, everything's switching over to battery electric, which is high, I kind of tease fire chiefs. I said electrification should not be scary, you're already doing it. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, did you buy extrication tools in the last few years? Yeah. I said, did you get battery ones? Oh yeah, they're great. They're light, they're fast, they're better. I'm like, yeah, that's electrification. You just wait till you get your electric fire truck and you're going to get the same kind of, oh wow, this is so much better uh, type of a thing. It's just one of those things where it needs to keep growing, and the nice thing is it really is growing. It really was. When Berea put theirs in, they were one of less than 10 across the country, and now there are too many for me to keep track of anymore. I was trying to keep track, and it's a waste of my time because too many are switching. We already have several in the state of Ohio that have switched. And I personally think the Tesla Model Y is the best version of a police car as of right now just because of its combination of power and everything. But I'll tell you what, watch out for the Tesla Cybertruck. Yeah. That that will be the police car, just like the Ford Interceptor, the Ford Explorer Interceptor is almost like the default police car everybody sees. Most people buy those or the Tahoe's. Right. Some are still buying the Dodge Chargers. There's not that many choices out there for police vehicles because you want ones that are specifically made for that. That Cybertruck trumps all of them. Size, speed, power. It's partially uh, bulletproof. It's kind of like a tank. Yeah, it, but it yeah. also is a fast tank. It's, right. Oh, it, it will be the the police vehicle of the future. Absolutely, it's going to be there. So in 20 years from now, every police department that doesn't have a Cybertruck will wonder why they don't have one. It's just, it's insane what it's going to be like. But yeah, it's 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 a belief and it's that same fear, uncertainty, and doubt and misunderstanding uh, that we have to overcome, which we're going to. And folks like the police chief in Berea, I loved your, I, that's one of the ones I listened to before I got on your podcast. He does a great job of explaining it. All you need to do is try it out. So when I leave people after giving them my little spiel about what they should be doing for electrification for municipalities, I tell them, just do this. Go lease from a leasing company, a fleet leasing company, not from a commercial or a, the kind of lease you and I would get when we want to lease a car. Go lease from a fleet company and try one out. Try it out for a month in the fire department. Try it out for a month in the police department. Try it out for a month in administration. Try it out at the service department. Just go try it out and then realize what it's like to have and use an electric vehicle and then decide if you're ready to, to go to the next level. Yeah, and kind of to touch uh, upon something you were talking about a er little earlier is like as EV drivers, EV advocates, um, I mean, we could go because there, there's like a culture, I think, in a lot of these groups, whether it's a police department, a fire department, whatever. Yes, absolutely. Tradition. Yeah. And, and it's like we could talk to them about the features and benefits until we're blue in the face. But we had a ride drive education event, uh, I would say maybe a couple years ago in London, Kentucky. And uh, we were able to get the Berea Police Department to bring out an officer that, that was familiar and drove Perfect. drove the car, brought it there. And the London police folks were swarming around that thing. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, they, they're all very curious. The switch is about to happen. Yeah, yeah peppering them with questions, <laughs> looking like a little like, you know, wondering mm -hmm. what is this all, this new new thing that we're looking at, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so much more effective, I would think, someone within the fold, you know, than what they would consider an outsider that doesn't know anything, right, you know, exactly. coming in and telling them what to do, yes. you know, uh, which is the last thing that they want. That said, I mean, uh, you know, again, you know, it's been two or three years, Kentucky, Berea is still the only one. Um, I know of a couple uh, pretty close in Indiana that have switched. Uh, one, I think, has a Mustang Mach-E. Another one has a Tesla, I think, Model 3. And I've seen them out at events, you know. But a really smart thing, and this might be the transition to uh, to infrastructure, a really smart thing that Berea did uh, and that we, we worked with them on, uh, because one of the things we do with Evolve KY is we, we install community chargers. So... Um, I think it was a simple Google search that uh, the police chief did, and he found Evolve KY. We were the first ones to come up, and he saw the, the good things that we were doing in that infrastructure space. And um, he was like, we need chargers at, at the police department. Can you help us with that? And we did, and we actually helped them at a, a cost that was better than if they did it themselves. Oh, absolutely. Plus the publicity and, and the support that we offered in addition to that. So it was kind of a no-brainer. But then in addition to that, I think we're up to something like 18 community chargers in Berea because they took a holistic approach of, oh, okay, not only are we going to have chargers that are just for police use at the police department, so kind of like workplace charging, but we're going to have community charging throughout the town at a lot of different places so that if a police cruiser is going by and they need to do some paperwork and they're just quote unquote idling there, um, they can charge, you know, if there's nobody on that charger. And they shouldn't need, they shouldn't need to just no. because of how much power is there, but it is nice that you could. Right. And, and they, they're seeing these police vehicles out in the community, which I think more and more these days, it's, it's less of like, we are the police force and we're going to, you know, um, use brute force on everybody and more of, yeah, bit building ties with the community and showing them they're out there for the community. Yeah. No, community policing is a big deal. Yeah. You know, which is the way it should be. So, um, yeah, I mean, can you, I guess, um, talk a little bit about uh, infrastructure and um, I guess also the benefits of EVs in the emergency vehicle space, um, because we, we don't hear that much about that. So you've got two parts. So let's do the EVs emergency space, the advantages. Let's, let's go into that one. So one of the first things I realized, in addition to not only the physics really good on these electric vehicles, the native electric vehicles, but the size of the battery pack is significant. So my battery pack is uh, just under 80 kilowatt hours. My whole home uses less than that battery pack on its worst day because I was looking at my house for putting on solar and wanted to see what my return was going to be and how much power I was actually using, or sorry, energy I was using at home. And I realized, wow, this could run my whole house for a day. Then I find out from the grid's perspective, you're adding a house to the grid every time you plug in one of those vehicles. And if you wanted to add a DC fast charger, which will charge 250, 350 kilowatts, now you're trying to get that battery pack filled up to 80% state of charge in 15, 20 minutes. So now I want a full day's worth of running a house, full house with air conditioning, all that kind of stuff, in 20 minutes. That is an incredible load upon the grid. 
So from the grid operator's perspective, and I've been many of these meetings with folks, and this is one of the things people don't realize is they consider electric vehicles, or they used to consider electric vehicles, a threat. Because if everybody plugs in their electric vehicle once in a hot, sunny afternoon, you're going to take the grid down. It's, it's very dangerous because you're asking for a day's worth of power in less than 30 minutes. Huge power demand. Well, the nice thing is 95% of us charge at night at home. So actually, it's a benefit to the grid because at night there's so little demand on the grid, putting that demand or deferring that demand to nighttime is actually beneficial because now the grid can actually run more efficiently because it can keep that base load around the same level. But in emergency services use, it's different. So that electric vehicle with all that power can easily work a police shift. Unless you are a long distance state trooper or a large county sheriff type of a vehicle that has to run hundreds of miles a day, now you need some bigger, bigger infrastructure, which we'll talk about. But for most municipalities, so a city police car, they're driving less than 100 miles in a, day, in a shift. They can easily be electric and should be switching today and they'd save a lot of money. Meanwhile, if they do not assign that vehicle to an individual officer, they have to have a shift change and switch between vehicles. And that's where the problem comes in. So I think Berea was talking about how they actually assign the car to an officer. They actually take it home, charge it home, that kind of thing. Yes. Though that is the low-hanging fruit. Most departments who have switched already, who are trying these out, have that model. So Logan, Ohio, who I worked with, and also got an EV charger put in for them. I could tell you a mini story rela related to that when we talk more about infrastructure. They assigned it to an individual, and one person has it that works night shift, so he keeps it home during the daytime, and they can charge it up and then bring it in to begin their shift so they don't need a more robust infrastructure available. However, being a public safety professional with many years of experience, I realize that stuff happens. That's pretty much the the basis for why fire and EMS exists because things go wrong. What happens if you forget to charge? What happens if you have back-to-back -back pursuits? What happens if you have to have back-to-back uh, -back large structure fires that you're there for several hours where you're depleting all the battery packs of all these vehicles? How do I charge my emergency service vehicles back up quickly if I don't have a Tesla and a supercharger in town? So what do I do? Plus, if the Tesla supercharger is in town and the grid is down and it runs off a 480-volt three-phase power off of the grid, then I don't have a charger. So right. what do I do about that? And that's where the infrastructure process, what we were thinking about, came into play. So let's use Logan to start. So Logan, Ohio got two Tesla Model Ys, and they got a grant to put in a level two charger, and they put in, they wanted to put in two connectors. So for those that don't know what I'm trying to talk about, it's called Electric Vehicle Supply Equipment, or EVSE. And it is the actual connector on the wall that has a plug. That's connected to a circuit in the in the building that runs off of wherever the panel is in the building and then gets the power from there. And level two charging is AC power at 240 volts like you have in your house. So they're going to get two of these wall connectors splitting one 240 volt circuit with 40 amps. So that's what I have in my house for my car. That's not enough for public safety. And when you plugged in both Teslas into one 240 volt circuit with 40 amps, you split that. Now it's two 20-amp, 120-volt outlets, which is what you have in your garage at home. That wall plug, that takes, for a Tesla to get 80%, that takes a day. It takes 20 hours to charge a Tesla to 80% on a wall outlet like that. So the first thing we did was go from 40 amps to 80. Now they've got two level 2 chargers. But basically they were putting in two level 1 chargers without even realizing it. By the way, the folks who don't know, level 1 is a wall outlet. Nowhere near enough. And what happens when the power's out? It, it, you're, what are you going to do? 
So what we recommend, and we recognize this because I started looking at fire trucks, which we can talk about more about power and energy for that uh, when you, if you want to go there. We realize that you're going to need a lot of power. And if you've saw the recent announcements from Tesla related to their semi and their Cybertruck, that they're going to be available and able to do megawatt charging. And there is a standard being developed. I happen to be on the SAE committee that's developing the J3271 standard because I knew this is what fire trucks are going to need. Because if you want to charge a 300-some kilowatt-hour battery pack in 15 minutes to 80% state of charge, that's a megawatt. Of power. If you want to charge four police cars at shift change to 80% state of charge and each one of them needs 60, that's 240 kilowatt hours you need in 15 minutes, another megawatt is necessary from the grid. So megawatt charging is not what you have available in your, your buildings. You would have to build not a, quite a substation, but pretty close to building a substation on every fire or police station, which makes no economic sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. This is where we figured something out. Put a battery on the building. Then you can transfer DC to DC from a DC battery to a DC battery, more efficient transfer power, uh, energy, excuse me. And you can charge that battery on the building from your roof. So solar panels on the roof, which in Kentucky, by the way, the Kentucky Coal Museum has solar panels on the roof. Yep. So solar works great in Kentucky. Actually, Kentucky's a great state for solar. Uh, solar on the roof can trickle charge that battery. Now that battery is available for whenever you need it for that level of charging. In public safety world, you need to create a factor or safety factor so that you have more than you need on that thing. It's, by the way, that's called a microgrid. So that, that safety factor of municipalities means you need one and a half times what you actually anticipate your worst need will be or that peak demand. And that's where you come up with, oh, so if I have a megawatt charging need for 15 minutes, that's the power demand, 10, 12 times a year, or three times a day every day for a police department, then you can design a system that can provide that kind of power. But your battery pack is going to be kind of big, the one that's on the building. Well, because it's big, you can use it for other purposes as well. It offsets your energy cost of the building, which then pays for itself and saves taxpayer dollars. You can charge your electric vehicles. And when you're charging electric vehicles, you're essentially driving on sunshine off of a system that pays for itself, also saving taxpayer dollars even better than buying the electricity versus gasoline. And of course, electric vehicles are cheaper to own and operate. So essentially, you can you can save taxpayer dollars three different ways with the combination of electric vehicles and microgrids. That same economics applies to any building, any business that has a high energy needs, high power demand, or a critical process that cannot lose power. And if it does, you lose a day's worth of work and what's that worth to your business, all that kind of stuff. Same thing for municipalities. You need to protect your critical infrastructure. Fire stations, police stations, service departments. Snowplows got to be able to get out. Fire, the fire trucks have to be able to go. The ambulances have to be able to go. Police car, cars cannot wait to charge. They need to charge quickly. So we need to develop this infrastructure. And if you couldn't tell, this is a new world of thinking for municipalities. Talk about just trying to think, get them to think about EV. Now we got to get them to think about EV and doing microgrids. The nice thing is it's going to happen no matter what. If you look up the National Renewable Energy Laboratory's example of a megawatt charging system, they have a graphic. It includes a microgrid. And if you look at the electric vehicle chargers that are more remote, that need to have additional power to be able to actually function, they also work off of a microgrid. I think Tesla just posted some pictures yesterday of one of their charging stations with solar panels using canopy solar. Uh, that was That's a microgrid that they're, they're doing that with. So it's coming. It's going to work. 
Oh, by the way, the Department of Defense, if you look at the Army's climate plan, what they're going to do to deal with climate, item 1.1, the first one on the list, is microgrids on 35 bases. So the military has already figured this out. We need to do the same thing for every police station, every fire station, every service department, every bus garage for schools. They all need microgrids and electric vehicles, and all of it pays for itself so it off because it offsets energy cost and is a better, more resilient energy infrastructure. Because what did I say when I began this whole diatribe about this stuff? I plug in that electric vehicle. It's a, it's a house on the grid, every single one. Well, if I have a microgrid that absorbs that demand and then can be refilled more slowly when it's appropriate or better for the grid, well, now I'm not shocking the grid by charging electric vehicles. And that battery pack is so big, especially for critical infrastructure, the grid operator can actually use it and it has benefits to the grid operator. And by the way, the electric utility companies, they figured this out too. So they're they're doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, and actually, I mean, microgrids was was the next thing I wanted to talk about a little bit. And and lately, we are hearing more about it. I think the latest time I heard about it was um, hospital a- applications. Yeah, very used because you don't want power to go out in the middle of a surgery. Yeah, no, that, that's a big no. major stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I find it interesting. We're not talking about going off grid necessarily Correct. it's still you want it you want to connect, right because it's a grid asset if it's designed yeah. properly it should be a grid asset as well as a facility asset right i mean how are utilities looking at something like this um i know that throughout the nation you know um i think the whole uh, idea of energy is getting flipped on its head and um I think solar is becoming, in some instances, seen as a threat, uh, like rooftop solar. I mean, is is there a danger of microgrids also kind of being viewed in that light, and maybe not considering the the benefit of the community and the and the individuals? Um, you know, I just I kind of wonder what that's going to look like. Yeah, same fear, uncertainty, and doubt that you get from anybody else, that not in my backyard perspective, things like that. So let me give you some examples of microgrids already being built and the benefits that they're providing. So uh, there's a municipal electric provider in Southern Virginia, Danville, Virginia, that's put in a nice big amount of solar and now they're gonna put in a huge, a 12 megawatt hour battery because it makes sense for their grid. That will make their grid in that area more resilient and better than what they had before, because if the energy they get that comes from the transmission grid, which I'm talking about distribution, when I say the grid, I mean distribution grids. That's the the grid that brings the energy to your house, the wire that goes into your house. The transmission grid brings energy, you see those big, huge towers that go across your, your state, to a distribution uh, grid substation that then goes out into the distribution grid. So Danville, Virginia is a municipal electric provider. So the the village of Dan or Danville uh, actually owns their own electric, but they also provide electricity for the area around them. So they put in solar, and the only way to maximize solar is to capture solar that didn't get used because when it produces electricity during the daytime, you need to use it or it's gone. So by having a battery, we can use it and then store anything we didn't use to use at night when sun doesn't shine, that kind of thing. So that's Danville, Virginia, Municipal Electric, very smart. If Moore County, North Carolina had microgrids in Moore County, North Carolina, when somebody shot up their substations, they would have been able to switch to the microgrid and use that power 
so that people wouldn't lose power. Danville, Virginia has building that kind of infrastructure. So if somebody shoots up their substation, they'll be able to switch the power over the microgrids because microgrids have to be connected to the grid with smart switches. They have to be uh, microgrid controllers. And the more you build them, the more you'd have to, you'd have to take out a hundred of them to be able to make the difference of just two substations if it's built right. Babcock Ranch in Florida was designed to be resilient against things like Hurricane Ian. Hurricane Ian hit Babcock Ranch as well. They did not lose power. They have microgrids and they have solar. As soon as the, the hurricane went over, sun came back out, they're good to go. They never lost power because they would switch to their batteries and right back to the, to the solar and everything's good. Of course, that's a really good sunny area too down in Florida. Montgomery County, Maryland has been building microgrids since 2017 using a financing model that allows you to access by building these microgrids without having to tie up capital. We know how much energy is going to be produced by solar on any square meter anywhere on the planet. Uh, they have a national solar radiation database. They know how much sunshine hits your roof. So they can tell how much power is going to come. So we can calculate all that and figure out what you need. So once you know that, you know what the power needs are from the infrastructure, you tie it together and add the EV load, which is new, adding the electric vehicle load to it. What do they need for charging? And now you can actually size that microgrid and design it. So they can get that and let a private investor build it for them and sell them that electricity because they know what the return will be. And they can get a return on investment by monetizing the sun. So they have a dozen microgrids in Montgomery County, Maryland on fire stations, public safety headquarters. The most recent one is at their bus depot, and they can now charge 40 electric buses off of Sunshine. Wow. They're no longer buying internal combustion engine vehicles for their transportation infrastructure. They're done. They're switching completely to electric, and it all is economical. It's saving them money, and they're building out that infrastructure without having to use up their capital expense to do it. So we've got a model in Montgomery County, Maryland. We've got the model in Danville, Virginia. And I'll use AEP Ohio here in Ohio, because Ohio is not a friendly to renewable energy state. It should be, but it's not. Kind of like Kentucky, even though the coal museum has solar panels on the roof. So southern Ohio, Appalachia area of Ohio, the city of Athens had solar. They wanted to put in a battery so they could offset the energy cost at their wastewater treatment plant. Because, again, solar that doesn't use the solar, all of it, then what the extra that you have just doesn't get used. So store it. So it was decided by AEP Ohio working with the city, well, let's put a battery in, but let's put a bigger battery in. And then they'll use it as a grid asset, but also allow the city of Athens to offset their, their power at their wastewater treatment plant so they get all the benefits of their solar. So it's a win-win right. for them to be able to do that. I'll give one last example. San Diego Gas Electric is putting in huge microgrids on circuits in their distribution grid. Again, that Moore County, North Carolina example, if somebody took out the substation, but you could still switch everything over to the microgrids and just deal with where the connections are and move things around. They're going to harden or make those circuits better. Those, they have schools, they have fire stations, they have police stations on those circuits. They're going to build huge microgrids with like 29, 30, kil, 30 megawatt hour batteries. That's huge. That's huge. amount of power that they are hardening and improving their grid to do it. So microgrids are coming. They're going to happen. They're already happening all over the U.S. It's just whether people understand how it applies to them, and it comes all the way back to electric vehicles are new. Once they try to understand electric vehicles, try to explain to them microgrids. And the good thing is my partner uh, in our business actually got his Ph.D. studying public policy, local government level for microgrids and found out that they don't know anything about microgrids. There's very little policy out there at the local government level on what a microgrid is and how to use it. The good thing is 
the utilities are embracing it because it's a benefit to them right. and a benefit to the customer. And the more people shoot up substations, the more they're going to realize, oh, we need to do stuff like this, and it'll make things uh, things better. Plus, we need to do it for the electric vehicle fleets. Absolutely. Does it factor in to equity in a way? I'm kind of wondering. You're, oh, that's a whole other application. So this whole concept, we're going to repeat. So I like how you talked about Evolve Kentucky has created from Berea's one charging station, what you say, it was 18? 18. Replicated and scaled. Same concept. Let's replicate and scale the microgrid concept. So one thing that is a barrier to electric vehicle adoption is upfront cost. They're very expensive. Another area that's uh, been a problem in the past is we put dirty energy infrastructure in low-income areas. So the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, those two bills provide money to be able to do clean energy investment in historically disadvantaged communities. So we absolutely should prioritize that because if I put a microgrid on in a school in a town that has, uh, or an area of a town, a neighborhood, that's been under-resourced or uh, taken advantage of over time, then let's put in a microgrid for them. Now their buses can go electric. Now they can have an electric vehicle car share program. So you can put a car share program in that neighborhood that they didn't have before, then they can share the car. And then when electric vehicles get down to where they're priced to a price that they can afford to buy their own, there's already an electric vehicle charging there. The infrastructure is already built. So justification or being able to afford to build out this infrastructure in disadvantaged communities is there right now. It's absolutely something we should be doing. So I've met with a nice uh, city northwest of Dayton, Ohio, called Trotwood, and they have been historically disadvantaged. And they're looking at using clean energy as an economic development tool and also to help improve uh, areas that have been under-resourced or taken advantage of in the past uh, so that they can have advantages other people may not necessarily or what you could just do at your school in a privileged area, uh, make it available to them. And the nice thing is the infrastructure makes sense because it pays for itself. The economics are there. It's absolutely the right thing to do for money as well as uh, for equity. Yeah. I mean, it's a win-win. Uh, that's what I like about it, you know? Yeah. And, and it's robust charging. You can right. put in charging that could go from 20 kilowatt, which is a top of a top of a level two, up to 200 kilowatt because you have a microgrid that has all this energy available to it, offset energy in the schools, charge for buses, provide electric vehicle charging for the residents in the area, uh, the EV car share. There's just lots and lots of benefits. We didn't even talk about just general resiliency for that neighborhood. The more resilient the power is for the neighborhood, the more resilient the neighborhood is. You know, grandma would want to live in that neighborhood because her power won't go out. She can plug in the oxygen machine. You can keep your medications that have to be cold in a refrigerator uh, in that because you're not going to lose power. You're going to want to live in that kind of a neighborhood. Right. That's great. Yeah, we've covered a lot. (laughs) So is there anything um, that we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about? Or uh, I, I think this was really great. Well, since we didn't really talk, touch on the electric fire truck thing, let's hit yeah, that really do that. quick. Right. Absolutely. Well, one, people don't realize there are more than a dozen electric fire trucks on the road today responding to calls successfully without any issues. The only issue is that I have is all of them have a diesel range extender. Mm-hmm. So they operate on battery 90 to 95% of the time, but we still need that 5 to 10% time where it needs to use the diesel generator to top off the battery pack. 
Uh, the also good thing is they successfully pump at fire scenes. They've got all the power necessary. People that don't realize electric motors are actually more powerful than internal combustion engine motors. What do you think drives uh, submarines, aircraft carriers, and freight trains? Those are all electric motors. It's just that the solar, the nuclear, or the uh, diesel actually creates electricity for that. So the fire trucks are going that route. And currently today, the largest battery pack is 316 kilowatt hours on a fire truck. And that's where you need to charge that in 80% of the uh, time. In 15 to 30 minutes, you need somewhere in a 800 megawatt of charging power, which is why you need to do a microgrid. If we build a microgrid on your fire station to meet your peak needs, it's oversized. And because it's oversized, it's a unique design of a microgrid. Also because it's oversized, you will have excess energy. So it's a problem of abundance. You actually have too much power. Well, if I would like to have a completely emissions-free fire truck, here's a good example where hydrogen fuel cells make sense. Hydrogen fuel cell passenger vehicles, waste of time. You're not going to build out an infrastructure to have hydrogen on every corner like you have gas stations. It is not economical. doesn't make sense. The hydrogen for passenger vehicles is too expensive. It's just all the stuff. In this case, kind of like with flight or with ferries or with ships, hydrogen fuel cell absolutely makes sense. And the price for electrolyzers is dropping like solar and battery has, which means it's on a ski slope going down. In the next 10 years, you'll have a microgrid on your fire station with battery power to charge your electric vehicles and an electrolyzer to create hydrogen and put the hydrogen right into the truck. All the losses you get for efficiencies for hydrogen or the, uh, how well hydrogen works and the issues we have with hydrogen, you don't have to do it because there's no transportation, there's no storage, there's no uh, putting it from one thing to something else, converting it into ammonia and all this kind of stuff. You don't have to do any of that. You electrolyze water, pull out the hydrogen, put it in your fire truck, and you do it right there at your station with the power uh, from your own microgrid. Now it's truly green and 100% emissions free. That's where we are going to go. So just like I'm predicting that the Tesla Cybertruck will be the police car of the future, uh, or the very soon future, uh, the hybrid fuel cell style fire engine is the perfect use case for how a hydrogen fuel cell battery electric vehicle, which those of you that don't know, every hydrogen vehicle is actually a battery electric vehicle with a hydrogen fuel cell that provides the electricity to that battery and then the battery to the motor. So... That's where I can see we're going to go, and we actually have a flyer that we provide to fire chiefs to help them understand that it's okay to switch from what we're doing today to the electric. That whole electrification thing with the extrication tools going battery electric, that's a good thing to point out to them. But we also have to point out to them that it was only 120 years ago that we were all driving horses. And the, the first, electric, or first automotive fire apparatus was in the early 1900s. The last horse was gone in 20 years. This is the beginning of the end of the diesel. In the next 10 to 20 years, you won't have any diesel. <laughs> it's, it's going away. The economics yeah. are already there. Um, you are going to end up with electric vehicles. Most likely, in 10 years, an electric drivetrain will be cheaper and the first option available to you. And if you want a diesel, you'll have to ask for, ask for it and pay a premium. And more than likely, get a penalty for, for polluting for no reason. Because in fire stations that I grew up in, before we had diesel exhaust systems, we used to have to clean the walls and literally wipe the black off the walls. And I was in a fire station, a small old one, where the diesel exhaust from the pump from the fire truck actually pumped into our kitchen because it was right mm. off of the bay. 
So I spent my career breathing that kind of stuff and getting diesel exhaust systems put into place. You don't need a diesel exhaust system when there's nothing in there burning anything. Right. So electric staff vehicles, electric police cars, they're going to go first. Ambulances, fire trucks, they're going to go next. And if they go to the big fire show in Indianapolis this spring, they'll see that we used to only have one prototype electric vehicle before the pandemic. This last year, we had four on the floor. There will be probably 10 plus, it'll be double digits, electric vehicles for them to try out on the floor at that conference this year. So it's coming. Uh, the nice thing is we can get and build these things here in the U.S. Uh, because we are onshoring our technology. So you'll be able to build it with American uh, manufacturing here in the U.S. And most uh, fire trucks that you buy aren't going to be manufactured in the U.S. or at least assembled U.S., even if the companies are, are foreign, the manufacturing, putting them together is actually in the U.S. So this is an exciting time. It's new. LA, LA City Engine 82 is the example. That's a Rosenbauer that has a, an electric and a diesel range extender that only turns on less than 5% of the time. It's almost always on electric. Oh, that's super exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting stuff. Yeah. It makes you look forward to the future. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> and right now. And right now. Happening today. Madison, yeah. Wisconsin, Portland, Oregon, Mesa, Arizona, LA, LA City, Berlin, yeah. Amsterdam, a whole bunch of places all have the electric trucks either on order. Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. That's on great. On order or already on the road, uh, running around responding to calls. Now, if uh, folks want to get a hold of you, uh, do you have some contact information you could share with us? Absolutely. So our company is called Command Consulting LLC. So it is Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, at commandconsultingllc.com. We didn't want okay. to buy commandconsulting.com because they wanted $5,000 for that one. Okay. So we got the website with the llc.com at the end. Also on LinkedIn, you can find us there. And, of course, our podcast is a fire service-specific podcast, and that is called Mentors on Fire Podcast. We talk about whole other stuff. Uh, life is in the fire service and what that's uh, like, and the mentors you have along the way uh, is very interesting. But as you can tell, I'm a little bit passionate about electrification, especially municipalities, because if we're going to have, and we will, electric police cars, ambulances, fire trucks, snow plows, they have to work. We need to build this infrastructure, and the good thing is the infrastructure could be built today, using somebody else's dollars, which is nice, and that frees up more capital for your municipality. No, and it's great. It, it points to a, uh, you know, a time when increasingly safety will be better and the environment will get better, and uh, it's all good stuff. So uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast today. I really want to thank you for, for joining us. No, it's my pleasure, and I will definitely get down to Louisville Good. And if I do, I will uh, get a hold of you, and we'll uh, we'll drink some bourbon and drive our electric vehicles. I'm sorry, no, we will drive our electric vehicles <laughs> and then drink some bourbon. That's the right order. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. I look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stu's EV Universe. I would like to thank Eden Unger for creating the artwork and the music for this episode. Remember, please rate, review, subscribe, and share, as that's the only way we can continue to grow. Now you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash EVU. Remember, the EV revolution runs on your energy. I'm Stuart Unger. See you next time.